this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindus in focus podcast with me amit barua your host for this episode by undertaking only his second visit abroad since the february invasion of ukraine to iran russian president vladimir putin has underlined the importance of tehran in moscow's strategic calculus is there a budding alliance between the world's two most sanctioned countries will they also be able to complete the astara rasht kazvin railway line linking the two countries through azerbaijan do russia and iran have chinese backing as they deal with sanctions and the fallout of the ukraine war to discuss all these questions i am joined by db venkatesh verma who was still recently india's ambassador to russia welcome to the in focus podcast venkatesh thank you thank you very much amit venkatesh my first question how do you see vladimir putin's visit to iran well it is an important visit bilaterally there was a lot that was discussed between iran and russia this was the first major diplomatic event that president raisi has hosted it was the first visit outside the ex soviet bloc for president putin after the russian intervention military intervention in ukraine in february but we should also remember that president erdogan of turkey also joined in for the trilateral it happens at a very important time in the region and globally in the region we have seen two parallel trends the blurring of the shia sunni conflict iran's isolation in the arab world is not as stark as it was in the past it's still there but not as stark as in the past the arab israeli dispute has also now morphed into something else after the abrahamic accords the united states is engaged but not exactly as engaged as in the past russia is under renewed pressure from the west and the united states iran is negotiating the jcpoa and largely has the negotiations in its favor and both in terms of content its demands and its timing and of course the situation in syria is poised for another another turn of events where there are four major players turkey russia iran and the united states so all these things put together i think reinforced for russia the importance of iran under a new leadership and the new regional and geopolitical uh, global geopolitical dynamics that are underway for russia the major outcomes are reestablishment of ties at the summit level uh, president putin also met the supreme leader energy is back on track because uh, as russia gets disconnected from the west from europe it would reinforce its eastern dimension on the on the energy track uh, defense uh, is definitely of interest to both iran and russia the north south corridor has got it an added significance and the growth of iran as a regional notable uh, its interest in brics and seo and other regional formations that uh, russia plays a role is of significance so i think it's a very important visit i don't think the russians would like the chinese to be a intermediary player between russia and iran because 
Russia has long-standing relationships with Iran. On Syria, of course, there is more assertive posture of Turkey, which uh, Russia is trying to moderate, but in return for Turkish cooperation elsewhere. Turkey is now the new other regional notable. All these new regional notables, Turkey, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, are now the new actors in the on the global level. And we saw this in good measure when President Putin visited Tehran. Tell me, Venkatesh, you know, with your vast experience in Russia, it it looks to me as if, uh, you know, Western countries, especially the United States, are not just, you know, hell-bent on reversing the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but it looks as if they are interested in a regime change in Russia and they want the departure of uh, President Putin. What is your sense, uh, you know, with the kind of sanctions being slapped on Russia? Will Russia be able to resist all these pressures? Whatever the original intention of the sanctions in February 2022, this year, when Russia militarily intervened and the Russian invasion of Iran, of uh, Ukraine began, there were a series of sanctions, quite uh, sharp, uh, quite comprehensive, that were imposed on Russia which were designed to change the political calculus of decision-making in Moscow. And the subsequent weeks, this uh, 140 days, 150 days since the war began, has shown that the sanctions have largely failed in their objective. Not only has uh, Russia and President Putin and the Kremlin shown that they are immune to political pressure of an economic nature exerted on Russia, a country as large as Russia, as integrated as it is in the global energy systems, that a system of sanctions that whose template were on much smaller countries in the past to be replicated on Russia only to be scaled up has shown the lack of planning and the lack of anticipation both in Russia, Washington and Brussels. And what we see today, in fact, is the sanctions have not only changed or dented Russian uh, behavior or strategic calculus, they are, they are in fact acting as a boomerang on the unity of Europe to stand up to Russia in Ukraine and in NATO. You've seen the concept of energy supplies that have been now reduced to Europe. Nord Stream's true is now down to almost 33 million cubic meters. Russia is to supply 160 million cubic meters. Russia has been clever. It has not stopped oil gas supplies. It has reduced the gas supplies because it wishes that uh, these limited gas supplies will be fought over by the Europeans. And that fight within Europe has already started. The European Union wanted a 15% cut in gas consumption. There are countries in Western Europe, such as Italy or Spain or even France, which say that they will not do less than 7% reduction. So there is an uneven balance of costs and obligations that uh, that Europe is uh, wanting to pay in realistically in taking on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that is uh, being played out in full. So we have a very clear picture. We're far from uh, President Putin being deposed. I think his political popularity and the, and the support for the war in Ukraine has risen to almost 80%. So it has had the exactly the opposite effect. Russia has shown 
that it can bear the pain and pay the price for its war in Ukraine, that whether the forbearance of pain or economic pain can be shown by continued European unity is a moot question. There are, in fact, serious question marks on whether this can go forward. So what started as an original objective has, in fact, now at the end of the second phase of the war, has been turned on its head. What's your sense? I mean, um, you know, you've had three stints, you know, as an Indian diplomat in Russia. The Russians, for themselves, they say that, you know, it was this expansionist tendencies on the part of NATO and ignoring Russians, you know, Russia's justified security concerns that led it to take this extreme step of, uh, you know, invading another country. What is your sense? Is there any justification? And secondly, related to this, uh, they also uh, speak of the fact that their military operations are against neo-Nazi forces. Is there any truth in this assertion as well? Both these questions to you. NATO expansion, five waves of them, were a measure of diplomatic success, provided Russia did not respond to them militarily. The moment that Russia responded to the expected NATO expansion by the incorporation of Ukraine into NATO, the NATO policy, supported by a large number of countries, including the United States, fell flat on its face. It is a demonstration of its failure. Now, having said that, I think Russia miscalculated too. To match the miscalculation of the West, NATO and the United States, there was a, a matching miscalculation on part of Russia that limited military operation would uh, lead to the collapse of the government in Kyiv and the collapse of the Ukrainian military forces. There was a Russian calculation that the Ukrainian military, through uh, sustained NATO military supplies and training before the war, would lead to the creation of a very substantial military force uh, that in a couple of years' time would be formidable force uh, against Russia. So Russia has intervened militarily before a bad situation became worse. Of course, there is there are now two big miscalculations in play. The first phase of the war, there was a stalemate uh, militarily on the Russian side and the, in terms of the economic sanctions on the on the Western side. In the second phase of the war, Russia has improved its military situation in eastern Ukraine. It has uh, completed the occupation of 100% of the Lugansk region. More than 60% of the Donetsk region has been occupied. Presently, there's a pause in operations. Uh, Russian military forces are resting and refitting. There has been a substantial attrition of the main fighting battalions of the Ukrainian armed forces. They've fought very well, but uh, in the last several weeks, uh, they've taken severe losses. And it remains to be seen whether Ukraine would be able to in the next phase of the war, in the third phase of the war, whether Ukraine will be able to bring back fighting battalions of the capabilities that they showed in the first phase of the war. Of course, there has been a shake-up of the security establishment in Kyiv. Uh, the Ukrainian government and the security establishment is undergoing a change. President Zelensky has uh, removed a number of uh, senior security officials on the grounds that they were secretly collaborating with Russia. So the government in Kyiv is not as powerful, as, as united as it was before. Of course, there has been a huge influx of Western American NATO arms into Ukraine. So the technology with which the Ukrainians are fighting the Russians has uh, dramatically increased in the last several weeks. 
but the number of fighting men and women that are available for ukraine to put up a stout defense against uh, russian advances that are expected in a couple of days time that is a very big question if there is a collapse of the ukrainian army and that is not excluded in eastern ukraine then russia would gain substantial territorial acquisitions in eastern and southern ukraine if there is a stout defense as we have seen it in the first phase of the war then of course russia would be blocked from advancing further so there are two differing assessments uh, leading to d- two different expectations russia is wanting to build in the third phase on the second phase of the war ukraine is expecting that its ability to take on the third phase will be a continuation of the first phase of the war let's see what happens on the ground in reality but on the whole i would say that the advantage slightly is in russia's favor so do you see any end game in sight i mean what happens now i mean we've seen uh, you know contradictory reports of military success and frankly it's quite difficult for lay persons to make sense of uh, you know the military claims and counter claims so what what is your sense of a possible end game in the war Yeah you're right you know getting a sense of how the war is going is very difficult especially for us in India because there is also an information war that is going on along, along with the military war and, and the cyber war and the economic sanctions war and the information space has been dominated almost 90 95% by Ukraine and the support that it has secured from the west of course there's been a russian pushback in the last couple of weeks uh, russia too has turned into the information war to project its point of view but largely claims and counterclaims have to be uh, taken with a pinch of salt with a bit of caution on both sides but the reality on the ground is that russia has secured though slowly some substantial territorial gains in ukraine the sea of azov is now almost entirely a russian lake they have started incorporating key southern ukrainian cities such as mariupol and kherson into russian administrative systems russian passports have been given so there is certain incorporation of russian uh, of ukrainian territory to be under administrative control of russia but how the war will pan out remains to be seen i would say that as there are differing expectations on both sides each side believes that the third phase will yield military advantages to itself so therefore their propensity to talk and discuss and come to a negotiated settlement is presently not there because both sides think that they can gain the upper hand except for minor tactical issues such as opening up their ukrainian ports for export of wheat exports and demanding of ports and things like that except for certain small measures in terms of war aims the war aims still remain denazification and demilitarization of ukraine on the side on the part of the russians and foreign minister lavrov's recent comments say that russia is wanting to expand its war aims uh, naturally if you think that you are winning the war you would uh, naturally expand their war aims ukraine says that uh, russia uh, ukraine uh, does not want to concede any territory to russia so that remains so the united states has very clearly said that they wish to deny russia any military gains in eastern ukraine and also dent the strategic sustenance of russia the strategic capabilities of russia to undertake future aggression in the future against nato or 
or against other countries. So when you have these generalized war aims of a comprehensive nature, these are, we can take it that these are posturing. So I think we'll have to wait until the battlefield creates its own clarity, clarity of uh, positions on the ground and clarity of mind for both the contesting parties. But we should remember that this is not merely a military conflict between Russia and Ukraine. This is a more generalized conflict between Russia and the West. So there are a number of stakeholders as to the conduct of the war. And there are a number of stakeholders of as, as to see what should be the shape of the peace that is yet to come. Venkatesh, you know, another key, pay, key player who, which we haven't referred to uh, till now in our discussion is China. Uh, the Chinese have been mildly critical of uh, Russian ac- actions, but by and large, I think they have acquiesced, at least that's my sense, you know, in, in, in whatever Russia has done. What is your sense? I mean, are we seeing now the emergence, in a sense, of a new world order where countries like Russia, China and Iran are three major countries who are going to form a sort of an anti-West pole, whether whether they're being forced into it or whether this is something being dictated by events. I'd love to have your thoughts on these. This is a period of immense flux in the international system. I think generalizations are attractive, but generally these are lazy generalizations which tend to poor faulty conclusions. There is uh, as yet no new world order that is emerging. What is emerging is through the pangs of violence, the first offshoots of multipolarity. Multipolarity in the sense that uh, Russia is militarily opposing the unipolar military dominance of the United States through NATO in Europe. France and Germany have stood by the United States for the time being. Let's see how that pans out. There are, as I said in the beginning of the program, a number of regional notables that have appeared in the scene. We should take note of Turkey and the very active and almost assertive role that it plays both within NATO, with Russia, against uh, Russian and Iranian interest in northern Syria and in the Middle East. So that is Turkey. We've also dealt with Iran. So there is a general flux that is taking place. Kazakhstan, which has a strategic partnership with Russia, a member of the CSTA, member of the CIS, a member of the Eurasian Economic Union with Russia, which uh, which uh, has not endorsed Russia's military intervention in Ukraine, has not recognized the two republics that have emerged out of the declarations of independence of Lugansk and Donetsk, and has tried, has attempted to follow uh, its own path uh, with respect to Russia. With respect to China, there is no doubt that uh, this is a phase that has given China a distinct advantage. There is a triangular relationship in a, in a strategic sense, in a geopolitical sense, between China, the United States, and Russia. Russia and the United States are at the bottom of the triangle. They are locked into this uh, this conflict, which presently seems to have no end in sight, because largely on account of the fact that it it is being defined in existential terms and value-laden terms, uh, and the weaponization of values is another indication that we are seeing. But the weaponization of values is never a good indication of good strategy. So that is something that we would await from Washington whenever good sense will prevail 
uh, on washington's end brussels is under more or less under the control of the united states in terms of defining the conflictual relationship with russia so china has an advantage which is that at being at the top of the triangle it has the ability to pick and choose how it wishes to engage with russia on certain matters or engage with the united states on certain other matters of course you have the more your visible symbol of conflict between us and china with respect to taiwan but uh, it is not just about taiwan and the united states and nato have defined russia as a threat china as a challenge there is a difference between the two china would like to see to the extent possible that the international blowback in terms of economic sanctions do not affect its own relations with the, uh, with europe or the united states but at the same time keep open its channels with russia it would not like to see russia weakened beyond a point because once russia is weakened beyond a point and then the united states would be left free and excrete itself from europe to take on a more active profile in the indo pacific china like everyone else is well aware that the united states does not have the capabilities to fight on a two front situation on the eurasian landmass be committed in a very deep manner the with nato against russia and nato's role has uh, has expanded much more much more than in the cold war period the nato's front a front today with russia which is still expanding is twice as large as the front that it had in the cold war period with just half the military commitments that were available in that period so there is a big gap between commitment and capability in nato that is something that nato and the united states would need to work out over a period of time this is a gap that it is very visible and until that is worked out the united states will not be in a position to pay more attention militarily to the indo-pacific so the united states in terms of policy commitment is very clear its priority is the indo-pacific but in terms of material commitment it is something that still needs to be worked out and that may take in fact several years to worked out so essentially china this is an advantage for china which of course impinges on our own calculus as we study track monitor and calculate geopolitical trends and uh, that is of high significance for our own uh, policy that's what i wanted to come to next i i think it probably deserves a full episode of the in focus podcast but quickly i'd like to ask you what are india's stake how has india done so far and what lies ahead for india and russia well there's no doubt that russia getting involved in a military operation in ukraine is a, not a matter that can be of any positive benefit for india russia has crossed a red line a significant red line in terms of sovereignty and territorial integrity of an independent state that was of ukraine but that was not the only red line that was crossed ukraine i think generally followed a policy that to protect its sovereignty and territorial integrity acquired after several millennia over the last 30 years was has pursued what has proven to be a faulty policy of seeking distant protectors for its proximate security problems and we are now witness to the tragic destruction of vast majority of the ukrainian uh, infrastructure the the compulsion for the expulsion that has taken place a uh, forced expulsion of refugees into europe almost 5 6 million of the ukrainian people and the destruction that it has brought to 
the insecurity that it has brought not only to itself but also to European security. European security that we have known since the last 30 years has fallen flat on its face. Now, this is something that needs to be worked out. Now, this is a challenge that we've, we are faced with. We, we have strong strategic partnership with Russia. We have an interest in carrying this forward. We know that there is now an additional challenge of uh, reconciling the conflicting, conflictual relationship between Russia, Europe and the United States. And we have a strategic partnership with the European Union, with key European states. And of course, we have a very productive strategic partnership with the United States. And we would like the United States to play a global role. Uh, the United States, in terms of grand strategy, is now having a major decision-making point. Uh, we would like the United States to be engaged globally, but it, uh, despite its policy perspective, its ability to do so may be, ha- may be strongly hampered by the commitment, the increasing commitment that the United States will now be required to undertake for NATO's uh, uh, defense against, uh, against Russia. The U.S.-Russia conflict, I think, needs to be brought to a settlement through a modest vivendi of an accommodation, of a mutual accommodation of geopolitical interests. Sadly so, I think there was an overestimation of Russian weakness in the last 30 years, which has been the main guiding point for American policy vis-a-vis Russia. That will be corrected, uh, not by persuasion. I think that will be corrected on the ground by the military success that Russia may or may not achieve uh, in Ukraine. So new realities will come into play and uh, the United States, whether by choice or by circumstance, will be required to take into account that, that reality. And what happens with our stakes, India's stakes with Russia? How do you think we've played that one? I think uh, this challenge has been handled with great deftness deftness by India. We have taken a position that is uh, pursued, that that is based on caution, on moderation, and an expectation that neither side will be able to pull off their war aims all by themselves. A negotiated settlement is the only way forward. We do hope that this negotiated settlement will come sooner rather than later. Do you think India can play a role in this? Well, all conflicts go through various phases. I think there was a window of opportunity towards uh, the eighth or the ninth week of the war. But now the conflict is going through a phase where a lot of the issues will have to be settled militarily first before the conflict becomes amenable to diplomatic persuasion by the major powers. And I'm sure the goodwill that India that India has in Moscow and especially the extraordinarily personal equation and rapport between Prime Minister Modi and President Putin is a factor that is of relevance in this context. We leave it here for uh, this episode of the In Focus podcast. Venkatesh Verma, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you, Amit. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.